Arts Interrupted, back for number three. <laughs> I'm Avery Friedman. And I'm Mike Watkins. And we're about to drop some arts news for you. Yes, we're back with the weekly news roundup. So, Mike, you want to kick it off with your usual Kanye spiel of the week? Yeah. Well, <laughs> on that, it is the last one for a while, the last spiel, because Darn. he deleted his social media accounts. Um which is typical of him while he works on an album and he's actually going to Africa to finish recording Yandi, which is delayed till November 23rd. So we got some time. We got a nice break from Kanye, which is good. Uh, For local arts news, the Michigan Theater is hosting a free screening of Jonah Hill's new mid-90s film. Uh, It's on October 24th at 7 p.m., Uh, If you don't know about the movie, it's basically a nice little look at the life of a young 13-year-old boy in the 90s. It's an A24 film, right? Yes, it is. I just saw the preview for that at um, A Star is Born, and you all need to see that immediately. I pitched it last week in the arts recap, and then I actually saw it, and I'm shook to this day, so you need to go see it. This is A Star is Born. Yeah, A Star is Born. I saw the preview for mid-90s, which also looks very good there. Also... Quick addition, the Michigan and State Theater are still doing their Scary Movie Weekends screening, so I'm always here for the preservation of spook. (laughs) So you should probably see those as well. Um, Also, the AMAs happened this past Tuesday. Did not watch those, whoops. But my girl Cardi B brought home Best Rap Hip Hop Artist. Post Malone got Best Pop Slash Rock Male Artist. And Taylor Swift won Best Tour. So T-Swift is back in the news for another reason because she pissed off a lot of people for being historically really apolitical despite her massive platform Um, people were getting kind of enraged that she hasn't spoken out about a lot of important issues that as we've been kind of in a tumultuous time in this country (laughs) as of late but she broke this apolitical streak and endorsed two democratic candidates from her home state of tennessee on social media wrote a really long caption on her instagram and voter experts say that she might actually sway the state um so this is a big deal and yeah so i think that's pretty much all we have for you this week consider yourself wrapped up in the arts news In this week's episode of Arts Interrupted, we're taking a look at the resurgence of print in various areas of the art world, from music to journalism to fashion, and from long-standing publications to indie zines and even college fashion magazines. We chat with some of the young people working hard to maintain the art of print in this on-screen age, so thanks for tuning in. So one huge example of the resurgence in print media and culture is zines. Uh, Zines are short for magazines, and they are these generally self-published books with small circulation that are inexpensive or free. And uh, they're fundamentally tied to whatever community they're addressing. They're very personal art uh, because you're not really making them to make money. You're making it for yourself and whoever's reading it. Uh, They're born out of counterculture movements and other general cultural trends. 
The first zine was actually a science fiction zine called The Comet that was started in the 1930s by the Science Correspondence Club in Chicago. And then a couple decades later in the 70s, zines saw an increase in popularity because technologies made them quicker and easier to produce. And then in the 70s and 80s, they started to shift their focus and became centered around the punk scene. So they became grungier and kind of adopted more of a DIY aesthetic. But when punk became mainstream and not cool anymore, so did the punk-related zines. And then again, a couple decades later in the 90s, uh, zines came back with the Riot Girl scene, which was uh, a musical genre technically, but it was also a feminist movement that encouraged young girls and women to start their own bands and make their own zines and just generally get their voices heard through creativity and art. So tons of zines uh, because of the Riot Girl age. And now today, in the digital age, zines are back and even cheaper to produce than they ever were. Uh, and some are even found online. And another aspect of the digital age that makes zines more popular is that because of social media people are more exposed to different art forms around the world and just different art in general so it kind of makes more people want to be artists and zines are a good way to do that because they're so easy and so personal and you can't really make a bad zine because it's just like you in a book for the most part uh so that's a huge reason why they're back to get a more personal take on zines we invited our friend and local zine maker, Emily Eicher, to come in and talk to us about how she started to get involved with the art form and what the art form means to her. She is a student at Wayne State University in Detroit, and she's a super cool person. So here's our interview with her. So when did you first get into contact with zines? Yeah, so I didn't really know a ton about them until maybe two years ago and I had picked up like anytime I was at coffee shops I'd pick up like these small publications and like little groupings of poems I didn't really know what they were and it was a friend of mine who actually now lives in Chicago who was the first person I knew who made one that I like didn't really know a lot about it honestly until it was someone I knew who was doing it and I probably picked up on printing about a year and a half ago now. But honestly, it was just by chance, which is what was in the original spirit of it, that you could put what you wanted out there and people would find it, which is what I had been doing without really realizing what they were. So what kind of zines do you make? Um, mine are mostly drawing and text-based. I don't really work a lot in photo or print format um, at this moment in time. Like, I'm definitely open to it. But all of my original zines and still the ones that I like, at least are still printing now, came directly from my art journals. So art journaling was something I'd been doing since uh, all through high school, pretty much. And it was a mix of like painting, collaging, uh, writing, drawing. And I started scanning those pages and then printing in one cohesive format. And I'm still doing that today. So that's still where the basis of my work is coming from or from my personal journals. So I'd say they're very personally motivated in terms of therapy for myself. Uh, a lot of them are mental health focused, are female focused, are sexuality focused, because those are what's most relevant to my life. And I would love to extend past that and maybe make them a little more political, a little more commentary on everything I like 
commenting on everything else going on. But for me, what's easiest is still to be drawing on what's going on in my own personal life. So how do how does the content get from your journal to like the finished product? What's the process mm-hmm. like? Uh, so my first three that I made were in a series that I had first ever printed about a year ago um, through the fall and the winter were already everything that had been pre-made in a journal just over the year leading up to that. And so it was a matter of finding patterns and cohesion within something that was already very raw and picking out pieces of it. And then just general scanning through a computer, um, which is how originally they had been being made and printed literally at my public library for 10 cents a page. (laughs) And then did that a thousand times, scanned, like double side, had to do it all myself, like making stuff double sided, putting stuff in the correct order. It was a very laborious process to do that. And then just general stapling, then putting them wherever I wanted to put them. So it was a lot of coffee shops um, down in the city in Detroit where I'm from. Uh, started mailing them out to friends. How many do you make at a time? How many at a time? Yeah. It kind of varies. So since I started printing, um, like originally I was paying for it, like at the library and it would be like 10 cents a page. So it'd literally be whatever it was in my piggy bank or my pocket. And I would just pay for whatever I could. Um, zines are supposed to be kept in small batches and not supposed to be something that is mass produced or right. through a printer. Sense. And people do do that and that's definitely like fine. And like I said, it depends on where you're coming from and what you need out of it. Um, but I like to keep it in that spirit. So I definitely usually have well under 50, I'd say maybe around 30 of each. Um, if I go to a show or I wanna um, bring more, sometimes I'll do a little like reprint of something. But since I do stuff on my own uh, my own printer at home now, it overheats if you do more than five <laughs> like copies at a time. Um, so do you have any idea what could be behind the rise in zine mm-hmm. culture lately? Because lately? I, like before I went to college, I had never heard mm-hmm. of a zine and it now it seems like everybody's trying to make them. Yeah. So why do you think that is? Uh, I feel like a lot, especially with college, people are definitely outside of their normal environments, or at least for the most part. Like people are not in as small of a high school environment, as small of a family environment, and they have the ability to be able to explore those mediums. And I feel like you're more likely to open up, you're more likely to get involved when you don't have those outside influences on you. And there's a lot to say, if not just like about yourself, but about in general, like what's going on in like the political scene. There's a lot to say, and we also have a huge audience, like for this young age group, being in city settings, there's such a huge range of people that you can get to, and it's such a quick way to do it that is still so personal yet can relate to so many people at once. Yeah. Um, Do you like collecting other people's zines and just like having them to have and look at and stuff like that? Yeah, I grew a pretty good collection over the last few months, especially just from going to um, little pop-up shows at, uh, at music places or galleries. I've gotten a nice little collection of them and everyone has such a different way of going about it, which is crazy. And I especially admire people who use a lot of photo or like who use a lot of poetry because it's not what I'm good at, I Mm -hmm. guess. And it's not like something that comes naturally to me. And it's definitely very motivating as well as just like the way people put things together, like the different mediums people are introducing to zines in terms of like some people will embroider their covers, some people will stitch them together. Some people will print each cover individually. So they're all a little different and they have, 
their own like etch print into it and it's really inspiring to be able to look through all of them and then see like okay what's not being addressed in the community like what can I add to this like what is there a lot of what is there not a lot of that's such an awesome collection having such like a a local and personal it's art cool. that uh, like people in in New York won't have these zines because there's such like yeah local things yeah it's interesting when you like put stuff out there to think where it's where it will end up because like I'll walk into some just neighborhood coffee houses and I'll see like four four people's like there and you don't know who's ever picking them up or where they're taking them which is just crazy to me because I have stuff that I have just picked up and it's some person who isn't even maybe from around here that Mm -hmm. I'm never gonna see again or going to like communal art shows and like music shows and people will just be like kind of passing them out is something that I've noticed a lot more even in the last few weeks than before and one of those places the Trumbleplex in Detroit is a communal living in music space and they have a zine library there and it has thousands and thousands of zines that they have open hours and you just walk in and you pull them off the shelves and they're stuffed everywhere and there are people from like California that ended up in that little library and it's the only place I know of even in Detroit that has it I'm sure there's more but um it's crazy it's crazy so everywhere so you just like walk into a coffee shop and drop a stack of them pretty much that's sweet (laughs) (laughs) yeah there are definitely I'll hit my spots there are like four places in Detroit that um I go to regularly and leave them and like I'm friends with a lot of the baristas and people you kind of start to get to know the other people leaving stuff or like you'll notice tags or you'll notice a style or a symbol that like you see repeatedly that people are leaving if it's like stickers if it's like some type of card if it's a zine or some type of flyer you start picking up on it and people I guess are starting to pick up like pick up on yourself too like people will see like that I leave something and not know me and like mention something to the barista like oh like that person drops stuff off again and they're like yeah Hmm. and it's like you weirdly interact with people that way Mm -hmm. but I'll probably never meet them yeah but we all kind of know about each other it's a little strange but yeah you just drop on places uh music shows people are definitely starting to bring more of their prints and uh art to those just stupid house shows people will set up set up like a little table and you'll just drop your stuff and go from there it's awesome so unlike many other publications many of whom are rolling back on print rolling stone is shifting to bigger higher quality print magazines as opposed to their old flimsy people magazine style prints which came out bi-weekly they'll be producing dense durable coffee table ready cardstock magazines once a month they're almost doubling in price too going for 9.99 as opposed to 4.99 rolling stone's motivations are similar to those of other publications who have rolled back their investment in print They're just taking the opposite approach. They want to hone in on the consumption preferences of their target audiences and refine their revenue streams in an ever-digitalizing age. According to Gus Wenner, the president and COO of Wenner Media, the previous majority stakeholder in Rolling Stone, the magazine, quote, wants to cultivate an authentic audience to set them up for long-term success. And you can't do that if you're creating a fake audience for your magazine and buying tons of traffic online, end quote. And at a time when many publications have the guiding goal of driving traffic to their websites, perhaps Rolling Stone views online traffic as just that, traffic. 
an unstable influx or a clickbaity clog, a pit stop people make during their daily online media consumption route. Rolling Stone, it seems, wants to create something that people want to hold on to, not just click or share a link to. They're trying to cultivate a, quote, authentic audience. And perhaps there's just something less authentic or tangible and rooted about consuming and sharing media via the internet. The new Rolling Stone magazines are meant to sit on your coffee table and be flipped through and talked about with those who you invite into your home. They act as an in-person aesthetic flex and an authentic conversation starter all at once. Here at the University of Michigan, beyond the Michigan Daily, students are working to preserve the art of print, too. The campus's premier fashion and culture publication, Shea Magazine, puts out a biannual, meticulously crafted, hefty magazine in the style of the new Rolling Stones. I talked to Shea's editor-in-chief, Liv Villard, about her prioritization of print. So thank you for being here, Liv. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So Shea publishes monthly online installations and twice yearly print editions. Has this always been the editorial structure of Shea? So we've always done twice yearly print editions um, since 1999 when we started as an Asian pop culture magazine. So we've done a pretty big evolution in our content since then. Um, But one of the biggest steps we took was in 2015, they started the... um, digital magazine, which at the time was called Shift. It's now just known as Shea Digital. Um, But we did that because we wanted to have more general staff members. And to do that, we needed to have more opportunities for them to create content. So having a digital magazine was great because we could attempt to recreate the print experience online for um, a lot less money than printing a magazine. Totally. Um, And then, so how do you personally view the relationship between Shay's print and digital issues, both creatively and in terms of Shay's brand and business? So the print edition definitely gets a lot more attention and planning. Um, mostly the board members work on that, and we work on that um, throughout the entire semester. Um, and it's a bit more cohesive. We definitely look at the print magazine as like the pinnacle of what we want our brand to be. Um, We do a lot of research about um, what professional editorial publications are doing, how we can improve, how we can elevate our work. Um, Digital, I would say, is uh, a little bit less cohesive because there's so many minds going into it, but it's really exciting because there's so much raw talent going into it, and um, we really give our general staff members freedom to do whatever they want, to draw inspiration from whatever they want. Um, We do hold really high standards for what goes into our digital magazine, but um, we don't limit them in terms of what they can be inspired from. Cool. Um, And then, so what do you think are some of the unique aspects that the imprint experience of Shea offers? So, like, why is consuming a fashion magazine on paper, in the flesh, um, special and worth maintaining in a time when many publications are shifting completely towards digital? I think it's it's something that's hard to explain. It's it's just the... It's just the experience of holding it in your hands. With digital, we really have tried to recreate the print experience online, and there's no denying. It flips. It flips, yeah. (laughs) We use Issue, so it's a digital magazine that seems like a print magazine, but there's no denying that it's just different. Like It's impossible to recreate the print experience on a digital medium. Um, I think part of that is... When my editors know that they're working on a print magazine, I feel that there's just a hyper-focus to 
like attention to detail and also that there's um, a permanence of it. You know, we don't do this ever, but in theory, you could, if you made a mistake, make an edit to the InDesign files, re-download it as a PDF, and then re-upload a new version to issue if there was a mistake. Right. In print, it's just, it's permanent. So what you're saying is it's a lot more intentional. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think the biggest difference for me personally between the digital experience of a magazine and the print experience of a magazine are the articles. I think that when you hold a magazine in your hand that has print on it, there's just a higher dedication to wanting to finish what is being read. For me, at the digital magazine, um, it's a little harder to f keep your focus on the words and it's harder it's just a little bit harder to read on the screen. So I think that um, for literature, for journalism, print is still very, very important. Totally. And then personally, you're an English major, yeah? Yeah. So personally, and perhaps aside from Shay, in your own life as a producer and consumer of art in various forms, um, what does the sensory experience of encountering art face-to-face -face and off the screen mean to, mean to you um, beyond what you've said about Shay? Mm -hmm. Um, so one thing kind of related to Shay is that every single launch party when I see, when I've seen the print magazine for the first time, like a lot of editorial board will go out afterwards and kind of celebrate and I just go home and cry, which my friends on it's Shay adorable. think is so sad, but it's just a really emotional, almost like spiritual experience for me to see all of my hard work in something as permanent and as intentional as a print magazine. Our last example of print media's resurgence is the interesting trend where publications that were founded online in the, the internet age and the digital media age that trumped print media are actually now turning back to print to supplement their brand, um, which is kind of counterintuitive given the notion that print media is dead and digital media reigns supreme. Uh, one of the publications that best exemplifies this is High Snobiety. It was a blog founded in 2005 uh, meant to focus on fashion, footwear, music, arts, and culture. And like I said, it was primarily digital, but in recent years they have been releasing this yearly magazine. And last month, the 17th issue of this magazine came out with the upcoming artist 070 Shake on the cover. And they actually had a big release party where she performed uh, for a very small exclusive crowd. So there's definitely a lot of hype and intrigue around this magazine. And High Snobiety also released a really thick hardcover book titled The Complete High Snobiety Guide to Street Fashion and Culture. It kind of begs the question that if print media is dead, why are these digital companies pursuing these uh, print-based ventures? And to help answer this question, I called a fashion writer and former Michigan student named Alex Rakestraw. He is a freelance writer for High Snobiety, actually. Uh, so we contacted him to kind of give his take on this weird phenomenon. Here's our interview. But I think this greater trend that we've seen with physical in any medium, whether it's vinyl, 
or zines, or even in the case of Tyson Abiety recently, they launched a physical book, is that these physical items are more about crystallizing your taste and like trying to manifest it in some way. And then having an object that shows off that taste to others who are in their immediate environment. But it's not where the actual business is run. It's never going to be a meaningful uh, amount of the business. And it's certainly not where the growth is coming from. It is related to, but it is in no way um, a critical part of that media in 2018. Essentially, Alex is explaining that print isn't the moneymaker with these uh, media outlets, but it has now settled into its niche role as this high art tastemaker that enhances a brand's credentials as a culture outlet and also lets fans of that brand manifest their passion into a physical object as an extension of their own brand. So it isn't, it is by no means the center of media, but it does play a very important little sidekick role. The like one-off art books, uh, a lot of stuff that Rizzoli and Fidon does. Also, I would say vinyl albums kind of fall into this. Compared to daily newspapers, um, there's no typical publishing schedule. It's infrequent. Um, they're big. They're expensive. They're bulky. It's not so much about a moment in time as it is, you know, a specific interest that you have. You know, like you don't you don't buy a coffee table book to get caught up to date on the news or even like news yeah. about a specific thing. You buy it to, you know, be told this grand, luxurious story, often photographed heavy about a niche uh, hobby that you might have, whether it's fashion or music. And then in the middle is where I think kind of is an interesting space right now. Um, the world of magazines, what's kind of funny about it is, like, no one in magazine publishing is really doing well, but some are doing better than others. And despite the printed magazines themselves not really selling as well as they once did. Um, you know, you can go out and find data sets about the actual newsstand sell-through of glossy fashion magazines, for example. For all the buzz around Beyonce's uh, Vogue cover, you know, that was, a, like, it didn't sell amazingly well for Vogue, if yeah. I remember correctly. Um, you know, again, I don't, have, I don't have data on that. I just remember reading a headline about the cover being the greatest asset of a physical magazine. That's true, but the other really enduring asset of the physical magazine and why I think it's so interesting is that um, the brand of the magazine itself is really what's bevying this growth online, and part of that brand of the magazine is producing a physical magazine, even though they know that it's not going to sell very well, it's not really going to be a moneymaker. When, when Teen Vogue discontinued print, it was seen as some kind of like, you know, watershed, like, oh, you know, the, the bad has won out. Magazine publishing is doomed. But if anything, like Teen Vogue is a younger-facing publication. It's not really that established of a brand under Condé Nast. If you could imagine National Geographic discontinuing print, that would be this massive, you know, strike against everything that is publishing in Western civilization. And, oh, one of the Hallmark titles is gone. Well, the National Geographic brand would be damaged and that would make National Geographic TV channel, Nat Geo Wild, NatGeo.com, the very idea of National Geographic having meaningful sway on what considers a good nature photo or not, that would be damaged. So between the daily publications that the daily print stuff that's you know still gonna sell, it's kind of like a moment in time. And then on the other hand, the crystallized taste, big, expensive, and frequent, you're not really reading it for news, you're reading it to have the thing. 
this weird zombie space of there is relevant news to an extent, but you're probably getting it off the Sports Illustrated or the Nat Geo website. There is a taste component of it, of you owning a physical thing, but a lot of that has to do with the actual brand of the magazine. Yep. And then to circle this all around, there's the actual growth of the magazine or of the imprint itself that's coming from digital. But that growth would be hampered in the case of some legacies if they were to stop publishing print. Like Time magazine wouldn't be the same without a Time magazine cover. And that would affect the multi and was $180 million value of Time as a brand thing. That would strike a huge, uh, huge red flag or kind of like devalue the brand. So it's it's an interesting space as a whole. It's full of it's full of loop. It's full of contradictions. The real takeaway is that physical is a novelty, but it's a novelty that people have a strong emotional connection to. Digital yeah. is where the growth yeah. is actually happening. So here, Alex is explaining that um, some newer, less established magazines like Teen Vogue and Nylon have successfully cut print without bringing print media back. Um, but the reason behind this is that they weren't firmly established and their actual physical magazines were never really a part of their brand. Whereas with more firmly established magazines like Rolling Stone and Time, um, they, they became relevant initially because of their magazines. And if, if say, Time were to cut production of their physical magazine, um, their brand as a whole would be severely damaged because it's part of its history and part of its character. Um, and if the brand is damaged as a whole, their digital presence would also be damaged. So Alex is kind of outlining, outlining this interplay between print media and digital media. Why print will always, in some ways, be around is that that feeling of you know, human connection to a physical object that you can touch, smell, that is not going to change in front of you, that when you, ref like, if you quote-unquote refresh the page, I don't even know what that would be for print, but, like, the, the things wouldn't change. It's not written in stone, but it's the closest you've got. Yeah. And I, I think there's something, like, very human about um, trying to, like, stake a claim on a specific moment in time. It's not antagonistic, but in the same way that, you know, a yearbook or... Um, a photo with your friends that you keep in your wallet is so much more real than something on Facebook. Like, yes, it's the same content, but there's something a little bit more about having gone through the effort to make it exist that I think now that digital is so easy is kind of like an interesting dichotomy to the actual uh, experience of it all. To solidify some of our ideas about print media and why it's back and why we love it with some empirical thoughts, our producer Sean spoke with Dr. Susan Gelman. Dr. Gelman, who is a professor of psychology and linguistics at the University of Michigan, heads a lab that studies ownership and object evaluation, among some other topics. We started by asking her about how we, as humans, conceptualize physical objects as compared to digital ones. Anytime someone interacts with an object, they're not just thinking about the physical properties of the object in that moment, but they're very much thinking about the history of that object over time. For example, sometimes books 
have a, a history that we value. Maybe it was a book that was given to you as a gift or you remember when you had it when you were younger or it was something that your family passed down to you. Sometimes there's that those special qualities of its history that just disappear completely when it's just an electronic version. One thought that we had over at the podcast is that maybe there's a sort of subconscious assessment of the time and effort and consideration put into something that is being printed or physically produced. Yeah. What I'm reminded of here with your question is that there's been work with really young children, as young as two or three years of age, where researchers have found that they evaluate things differently depending on how much effort somebody made into creating it. If something required more effort to be created, then it's more highly valued. So I think even if people can't put their finger on it, like you say, it could be at this intuitive unconscious assessment that you just think about something differently if you know that you know, a lot of care and attention and time went into creating it. Reading from a physical magazine or book often carries with it the connotation of ownership. We can collect issues of magazines, we can fill bookshelves with our favorites, but we can't really or don't collect our favorite online articles in the same way. Mm. Um, how does ownership versus not ownership change the way a person might value or conceptualize a thing? Mm. There's actually like a whole body of research on this in behavioral economics. One finding that has come up over and over again that I think is really relevant to your question is something called the endowment effect, which is once something is owned, we give it greater value. So one way people have tested it is they randomly assign people to receive either a mug, or a keychain. And then they've asked people, if you have the mug, say, how much would you pay for the keychain and how much would you be willing to part with the mug if somebody else wanted to buy it? And then they do the opposite for the keychain people. How much would you pay for a mug and how much would you be willing to part with your keychain if somebody wanted to buy it? And what you find is that people sort of overvalue the things that they had been assigned to, even though these were randomly assigned one thing or another. So it's something about owning something that kind of brings it closer to you and you end up, you know, giving it more value. You're a little bit more reluctant to let go of it. So I think there's something that even when the ownership is not necessarily something that's so valuable to the outside world, as soon as it's ours, is the sense where we want to hold on to it. We have this tendency to kind of create collections of things. You know, it could be stamps, it could be coins, it could be books. This is just a tendency that we naturally fall into. And so, yes, these physical objects kind of appeal to that side of us in a way that the electronic ones don't because they don't have that physicality. This week, we'd like to thank Emily Eichner, Liv Villard, Dr. Susan Gelman, and Alex Rakestraw for interviews. Background info on zines came from Mental Floss, and Rolling a Stone info came from Media Post. This podcast was hosted by Avery Friedman and Mike Watkins. 
It was produced by me, Olive Scott, and me, Sean Lang. <laughs> the audio engineer is Ryan Cox, and our theme music is by Brad Gerwin. Thanks for tuning in. See ya next week. <laughs>